You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, um, in light of doing that interview, we're going to not do sermon discussion uh, or sermon Q&A after uh, this time. Thank you, Katie. Um, for that, but I would say I've really enjoyed this Q and A time, and so it it, it, uh, it, um, it it helps us more actively listen to right what's being talked about from what we're studying in Scripture, um, and perhaps maybe Zach can even put on our lobby channel of like there is a, a Slack channel called Sermon Discussion, and I would love to continue anything from our text or anything that I say this morning. Let's talk about it. Let's continue to engage on this text, um, but you can find Sermon Discussion Slack channel, um, and let's have um, a continued conversation of what God has for us uh, this morning. Well, I've titled today's message, um, The Only Life uh, Worth Living. The Only Life Worth Living. And I want to begin our time by reading a quote um, from Sam Albury, who's a pastor and author. It should come up here on the screen. Well, this was, uh, this was uh, um, something that he said last summer uh, during Zach's um, podcast uh, with, with Sam. He, he said this. I wrote it down. He said, we're existing in a new cultural space. And he said, for as long as I can remember, Christians have been viewed as moral, perhaps a bit old-fashioned. But he said, today, Christians are viewed not as morally good, but as dangerous and harmful. Dangerous and harmful. And I think he's on to something there. And this is not me like sounding some like alarm bell of like, hey, we need to flee to the north woods of Wisconsin. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying or what I want to communicate is just to alert us to a present reality of where we live in 2022. You know, as we reflect on time in our country, Christianity has often, not always, is, is at odds at culture, with our culture, Right? You know, we can turn on our TV, we can, we can scroll through social media, we can watch a movie, we can listen to the popular lyrics of a song, and we, we hear it, we see it, right? That we have a culture drowning in sensuality, and, and violence, and, and greed, and power, none of which are values of the kingdom of God. However, what, what, what Sam is driving at here is that he's pointing us to a, a reality of perhaps a new cultural space. That we're perhaps maybe in like the era of like our grandparents. In, in that generation, maybe there was largely a culture that existed uh, that viewed Christianity as morally good. Maybe a little old-fashioned, like grandma patting your head, like, oh, that's nice, little boy, that you, that you believe that. To, to now, like a present-day culture that's increasingly viewing Christianity is dangerous and harmful. You see that shift? That the tolerance of Christianity is, is slowly perhaps being replaced by a growing opposition to silence Christian belief and conviction. For example, just this past month, I, I received an email in my inbox regarding a local ordinance in Indiana seeking to criminalize biblical counseling in matters of human sexuality. To criminalize it. A move from tolerance to silence. That we're living in a time where I believe, and this is just me, that we'll continue to see more and more of this type of effort to silence Christian 
belief. And certainly right now, right, sexuality and gender, how culture thinks about it, how the Bible speaks on it, is on the front lines, right? Right? And so the question that we have this morning is, is how do we seek to make much of God in a place and time that wants to make less of him? Or, or we could say it this way, how do you and I live amidst a culture that we see growing in opposition to the things of God? How do we live, how do we respond in a culture growing in opposition to the things of God? And that's where verses 27 and 30 come into play. Because God has wisdom for us for how we must live in these times. Because we remember, right, Paul wrote this letter just to a baby infant church in Philippi who lived in a time just like ours except far worse. They lived during the Roman Empire, which was wretched, wretched, it's so hostile towards Christianity that they would pack, we know it, right? they'd pack their coliseums, right, of cheering spectators. And they'd take Christians charged with no other crime other than just being a Christian, and they'd throw these Christians alive to starving lions. Like this was entertainment. Christians fed to lions. The Roman Empire wretched in ways we've never experienced in America. As hostile as any culture throughout history towards Christianity, and yet God's people prevailed. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this baby church in Philippi, these early Christians, they put to work these four verses and they rocked their world. And, church, God's wisdom is packed here for us so that we, the Vine Church, right now in our time and space, can continue to prevail, come what may. So Father God, we ask by the power of your spirit to unlock your wisdom to our hearts. Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit and word that we would leave here changed, grown in affection for you and your gospel. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're not there yet, turn to chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 27 through 30, as, as Kylie read. And as you turn there, remember our, our question that I want to perhaps address this morning is, is how do you and I live in amidst a culture growing in opposition to the things of God? And as I've stated, I, I find the wisdom of God drips out of this paragraph. And it all begins right there in the first verse of, of, chapter, of verse 27, this first sentence of verse 27, where Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you may notice a footnote right there in your Bible alerting you that those six English words, um, let your manner of life be, is actually one word in uh, the original text. A, a word that we would say in our present day uh, language uh, to refer to as citizenship. Citizenship. Meaning we could read or should read the sentence to, to live as citizens as worthy of the gospel. To live as citizens. And, and why is this significant? Well, let's think about citizenship for a, a quick moment, Right? We all know, and maybe we, we perhaps don't think about it often, but citizenship does grant us certain rights and privileges, right? Think about if you're a citizen of America. You have certain rights that non-citizens don't. 
And it also invokes a sense of pride and duty as well, right? We have patriotism. We want our country to do well. So it grants privileges and rights and invokes a sense of pride and duty to our country and to our fellow citizens. And in this historical context, Philippi is actually a Roman colony. And so we don't know for sure, but most, probably most of these folks in this church were probably Roman citizens, meaning they were part of the greatest empire in the ancient world, meaning they had the utmost privileges of rights of anyone in their time. And they would, they would know this profound sense of pride and duty to honor the emperor and to see their empire flourish. They would get that. Yet Paul is not exclusively thinking of their Roman citizenship. If you flip to the third chapter, verse 20, Paul reframes their citizenship to say this. He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul is so clever here. I love what he does. See, he's he's appealing to their own experiences, this Philippi church. He's appealing to their own experiences of civic duty and pride by living in the, the greatest empire of their time. In a sense, to be able to say this, you, Philippi Christian, have possession of a citizenship far more glorious than that of Rome. Therefore, your behavior better show it. In other words... As citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. As citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And and let me just be real clear here. I'm not suggesting that any one of us, you or I, are, are worthy of the gospel. That's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that our lives must be lived in a way that's consistent with the gospel. Meaning that we live our lives in such consistency with the gospel that anyone who comes into our space, anyone who comes near us, the only thing that they see is Jesus. They only see Jesus as they come near to us. And and, and Paul begins this sentence with that word, only, does he not? He says only, or we could translate it always, to always live your uh, life uh, worthy of the gospel. Only and always, meaning there's, not, there's no sabbatical or break in our heavenly civic duty on earth. There's no like a leave of absent when things get challenging or tough. It's only and always living our lives in a way in which presents G- Jesus, period. Speaking on this verse, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, John Calvin said it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of God, um, invisible kingdom visible. And R.C. said this, we do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks. Because God and Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. Only and always let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Translation, Make it obvious King Jesus lives here. And here's what's great about that, is that we don't have to be spiritual geniuses to do that. We don't have to invent some new gospel. And we don't have to improve on on an old gospel. 
We compel the attention of our generation simply by living in consistent manner to the gospel we already have. That's enough. Because the power of the resurrected Christ is packed into the gospel. Therefore, whatever may come, whatever is in our future, whatever we're going to face, we're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I love this quote from Pastor Ray Ortland. He says, how are we to be that embassy of heaven on earth by the power of the gospel? What does that look like? I love this. He says, it looks like a bunch of ragtag sinners marked by the grace of Jesus. That's us. Ragtag sinners marked by the grace of Jesus. And in the rest of this paragraph, Paul gives two remarkable evidences of that grace. Two indicators for the church that if true, we will shout, we will declare to our onlooking world that King Jesus rules here. We will make the invisible kingdom of God visible. What are they? Paul says we must, as a church, be united, number one, be united, and secondly, to be fearless. United and fearless. So let's go through both of those and then we'll be done. In verse 27, Paul calls us as a church to be united. He says there, we see this phrase, well he says, I want to hear of this, that this would be true of you. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That we're standing firm in one spirit. And I love this because it's not just hinting that we need to be united but it, it, it's a strong phrase that we are tenaciously united, fiercely united. We're standing firm. This is, this is, this is a military word that Paul uses. And, and Paul uses this word to convey the intensity of our togetherness. Meaning we refuse as a church to fragment. We refuse. We will not yield our position regardless of personal danger. It's to say we're we're locking arms together and we're all in this together for the sake of the gospel. All of our personal agendas, all of our petty grievances we may have, they go by the wayside because it's not worth it anymore. Why? Because we're caught up in something far more glorious than ourselves. I could probably use any Mel Gibson movie right here. But I have a specific memory within Braveheart. You guys probably, those of you who have seen it, probably know what I'm thinking. Where William William Wallace, this great soldier, leader, he's leading his fellow countrymen into battle to gain their freedom. And and he knows as they come to the battlefield, he knows they're outnumbered, they're, they're, they're outmatched. But he gives this compelling speech to his, his fellow countrymen. In a sense, just saying we have to stay united. We have to hold the line. We have to hold our battle line. And then you see that the scene advance and the the enemy we see come towards uh, uh, William Wallace and his army. And and the arrows begin to fly. And they begin to come down on William Wallace and his men. And and there is great loss. Many, Many people, soldiers there lose their life as the arrows come down on them. And then the enemy decides to to unleash their cavalry, 
the horses. And, and, and they, they charged towards William Wallace, outmatched, outnumbered. And as the horses are coming nearer and nearer and nearer, there's a shot of, of, of William Wallace like screaming, Mel Gibson screaming at the top of his lung, Hold! 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 Why? Because he knows their only chance of winning this battle is if they stay united. They cannot scatter. Because any division, any disruption, any deflection to how they stood united in that moment would be their end. This was their only chance. You see, Paul's point, I think he's saying that as the battle within our world intensifies, we must lock arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ, united as one church, standing firm in the spirit, unmovable. We cannot allow bad doctrine to infiltrate and divide us. We cannot allow temptation to overcome us. We need each other. That's why small groups, if you're new at the vine, our city groups are so essential to our faith. We need each other. You know, think of the times that you do give in to temptation. Think of the times where you struggle and just give in. Think of the times where your mind is perhaps plagued with doubt or anxiety. Think of those moments. And I bet, I'd wager a lot, that it was probably in moments where you're isolated and alone, trying to forge your own path. We don't often sin in in a community of believers. We often do that when we're alone. That's why online church, it doesn't work. We need to be in relationship with one another. We must have a group of brothers and sisters in Christ locking arms together saying, I'm all in with you for the cause of Christ. Do you have that this morning? Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ who know you, who are for you, who are with you? Do you have that? If not, why? What's keeping you from being all in with God's people? Or or you could think about it like this. How might God be calling you to help your brother and sister in Christ stand firm? They need you. But there's more. Paul's not done on on this call to, to be united. Again, in verse 27, It's not that we just stay united together, that we stand united together, but we actually move forward united together. In verse 27, he also says, that I may hear of you that you with one mind are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Oftentimes we always think that Christianity is just against everything, right? But we're actually for something. We're for the advance, for the faith of the gospel to go forward. And this word striving, it's rooted in our, in our word athletics, to compete as an athlete. That's what Paul's word here is. And, and I don't know about you, but I've been watching the Olympics nonstop. I love this worldwide competition of the greatest athletes, like competing men and women, doing things that are like impossible. Maybe Heather Lauren's the only one that can spin four times on an ice that I know of, but that seems impossible, doing quads and ice skates. Or going down a mountain at 90 miles per hour. Come on. 
or, or, or jumping in the air 300 feet? Like, that's crazy, absurd. Like, every single one of these Olympic sports could kill you, <laughs> except curling. <laughs> I jammed my finger. You're going to have to sit this one out. Emily says, this is a side note, Emily says my greatest chance of making the Olympics is curling. I'm going to go for it, wherever it is next. But it's this word striving to compete as an athlete that brings to light two implications as we think about our faith, standing united together. One, it's hard work. It's hard work. None of these Olympians just showed up in China and said, I'm here. When we watch on TV, we just see the final product. We don't see on our TV is the years and years and years of hard work that they endured. If you find living for Jesus tiring and hard this morning, that's good, because it is. It is hard. It is tiring. It's hard work, and secondly, it requires a team. Even if you're in an individual sport in the Olympics, right, there's a team of people around that individual, from trainers to coaches to family to nutritionists. There's a whole team of people around that individual. Well, let's think about bobsled, classic bobsled, four people. I know there's like mono bob. What's going on? I don't know. But four people in a bobsled, one sled down a mountain, 90 miles an hour, all these curves, right? And as we see the team slide down the track, their heads are bobbing. I love it. Their heads are bobbing, but it's in like perfect uniform, right? They're going, they're working together to make it down the mountain alive. And we know like one wrong shift of anybody on that team, it just takes one of them, maybe, I don't know, I'm just assuming, one of them to just wipe out, right? One guy leans the wrong way and the sled's going to crash. I don't know about that, but I think so. I would imagine so. But it's in the same way. It only takes a few of us in any church chasing after their own personal agendas or chasing after their own egos to derail the mission of the church. It only takes a few. But Paul says, with one mind, not three minds or four minds, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, quoting from Pastor Ray Ortland, because I love this, what he says. He says, we, the church, we're not a debate club trying to make up our mind. No, we're an army bringing Jesus with one mind. That's good. We're not trying to make up our mind about anything. Paul's point is that we are to be united for Jesus to advance his gospel. That's our goal and nothing else. Yes, it will be hard work. Yes, it will require all of us as the church united together using all of our spiritual giftings, just as we talked about in Next Gen. It takes all of us to advance the gospel. It will be hard. There will be suffering. We will have to endure, but it will be worth it. How do you and I live amidst a culture growing in opposition to the things of God? Paul says, one you stand united. You stand firm with arms locked together, not allowing temptation to overcome or bad doctrine to infiltrate and destroy. You stand united, striving together, enduring come what may for the sake of advancing the gospel. And here's what's awesome about this church. 
that as we lean in to this unity, as we stay united together, we also at the same time make the invisible kingdom of God visible. Because our world in this moment of standing united will begin to witness the true worthiness of the gospel as we stand united. How can I say that? Why do I say that? Because the church is the only place where every people from every walk of life can come together and be united without any difference. Because it's the gospel as the only thing that severs all self-interest that we have and binds our hearts together. Every nation and tongue bound together because of the worthiness of the gospel. And we will see this in full next week. Zach will be talking, will take this whole idea of being united and and really hit us on the head through Paul's words. But look with me in verse 3 of chapter 2. Paul says this very thing. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And hear this. Look at this. Have this what? Have this mind. This one mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in who? In Jesus. It's in Jesus. Do you share this mind of Christ? Do you share this mind of Christ? That for the sake of the gospel, you willingly and gladly lay down your preferences and rights to consider others, that they might know Jesus. Is that your mind? We must be united together to overcome a hostile world, and we must be united together to declare to an onlooking world that Jesus rules here. But the second evidence of grace that Paul refers to is that we, the church, are fearless. Fearless. Verse 28, Paul says, I want to hear of you that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents, not frightened by anything in your opponents. You know, years have gone by since Paul has left this church in Philippi, yet this baby church continues to have opponents. And we don't know necessarily who these opponents are or what they're doing, but it seems that Paul is alluding to that they're suffering the same way in which he did, by being beaten and imprisoned. And this word frightened, this is, a, this is a really clever word. This word frightened, it literally means an uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. I don't know if there's anything more terrifying than a startled horse <laughs> coming at you. Can you imagine this scene? A stampede of startled horses. Absolute panic. Scattering every which way. And Paul says, hey, 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 you Christian church, you don't be like that. You don't be frightened. You don't be startled like a horse. Oh, okay, Paul cool how why well he gives two reasons for why we can be fearless the second sentence there verse 28 he says this is a clear sign to them their opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from god you know you read this sentence very plainly it makes no sense like how does suffering is a sign of our salvation and suffering is a sign of their destruction right it makes no sense at all But it makes a lot of sense when we just ask one simple question, which is, how's the Roman Empire doing today? Are they still on top of the world? Of course not. 
And actually, I love this, it, it was a Jewish nobody crucified by a Roman governor who now governs the world. And second, we can ask, oh, how's the church doing? How's the church doing since Paul wrote this letter? You know, despite being founded by this ragtag group of sinners marked by grace that, that Ray you know, brought us to, to think about, despite the constant evils and opposition throughout church history, the church is not just doing okay. It's flourishing. It's booming on every continent. You see, Paul's point is this. We may be fearless, for we will never lose. We'll never lose. I mean, what is the worst that can happen? And these, these are bad things. We could have a life of poverty. We could have a slandered reputation. We, we could be put to death, as many are in our world, for their faith. But we need to realize that our opponents, they're not against you or I. They're against, they're at war against the Jesus in you. And there's no power in this world, either past or present, able to destroy a Jesus-filled you. It just doesn't exist. The powers of this world are intimidating. Like I raise my hand first to say, yeah, I am intimidated to, to live out my faith in my own neighborhood just because someone might speak poorly of me, let alone, like, no one's saying they're going to kill me, right? But as we stand for Jesus in the world that stands against him, we have no reason to fear because we've seen what Jesus can do even in death. They put him to, they put him to death. They crucified him. But Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead. If you're a follower of Christ, you possess something no one can take away. Our unflinching courage is anchored in the knowledge that we are citizens, not of this earth, but that we are citizens of heaven. An eternal destiny firmly secured by Jesus himself. So Paul's first point of why we can be fearless is that we will never lose. We may be fearless, for we will never lose. And it's not to say we go out and attack anybody we want. But it does mean, when it comes to the cause of Christ, we will stand up. And the second reason he gives is, is really there in verse 29, where Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And this is an incredible verse that I really, honestly, like, never really understood before this week. In that this word granted, it means to give graciously or, or to, uh, to, to bestow favor on somebody. And so, so Paul says it's been granted that you should believe in him. Like, I get that. Check the box. Like, yes, faith comes from, from God. I'm on board with that. Our evil hearts didn't come up with, with faith. That was, that was God. But, but, but Paul goes on to say that it's also been granted in God's generosity. He's got, he's got another gift in that box for you. There's, it, it's like a double package here. There's more. He's given us the gift of suffering for him. This is a gift to suffer for Christ. And if you're like me, I'm like, God, I'm cool. Like that first gift was amazing. Like, I'm cool. Like you don't need, any, you don't need to give me anything else. That was good. But I think we struggle to accept this gift of suffering for his sake. We just fail to remember that our lives are not about ourselves. 
Paul's already said famously to live is Christ. And Christ and the declaration of his good news, it it, it must be our our ambition in this life. And and chapter 1 of Philippians is just laced with Paul's ambition to declare the message of the gospel. No matter the cost. Think about it like this. Paul and this early Philippian church, how, how did this church come to faith? How did they come to faith? They came to faith through Paul's suffering, didn't they? As we read Acts, I believe chapter 16. They came to faith through Paul's suffering. If Paul had been frightened and scared off by these opponents of the gospel, there'd be no church in Philippi. We'd have no book of Philippians. Even more so, consider Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, how is it that you found everlasting joy and peace? Through the suffering of Jesus on the cross, right? You see, Paul's point, what he's driving at here is that we may be fearless for it's God's gift. It's God's gift. A gift that leads others to Jesus as we see in this church, but it's also a gift to grow you to be more like Jesus. After Paul has this miraculous conversion, God sends him a message through through a man, Ananias. Do you remember what that message was? This is a fascinating message. The message that God had for Paul was tell Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of Jesus. That's how Paul's Christian life began, with that message how much you must suffer. Welcome to Christianity, Paul. But it was a mercy, a kindness. Suffering for the sake of Christ is always a gift because in our suffering, we are united with Jesus and become more like him. We could pull from a lot of verses, but the Apostle James says it this in chapter one. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In some backwards recipe or formula, like God includes suffering and trials to to somehow bring about that we will grow and mature and be complete so that we're able to live a life worthy of the gospel. Are you tracking with that? We may be fearless for it's God's gift. How do you and I live amidst a culture growing in opposition to the things of God? The second evidence of grace is that we live as a church fearless. First, because we will never lose. There's no power able to overcome Jesus. And secondly, it's God's gift to be more like Jesus and to lead others to know him. And just as beautifully, church, as we fearlessly live in our broken world today, we make, we will make the invisible kingdom of God visible. But Jesus himself said this in Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot um, kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our world will witness the true worthiness of the gospel as we fearlessly live in a broken world. 
Why do I say that? Because our, our world is dominated, controlled by fear. Fear of sickness, fear of poverty, fear of being alone, fear of failure, fear of death, and on. But as we cling to Jesus, the only treasure worth treasuring, we may live without any fear. Realizing no one or no thing can ever take us away from the life we have in him. We live fearlessly because he is peace. And if we are in him, we have perfect peace. No fear. We must live fearlessly to overcome a hostile world, and we must live fearlessly to declare to an onlooking, onlooking world that Jesus rules here. The question we set out to explore was, how do you and I live amidst a culture growing in opposition to the things of God? Paul gives us God's wisdom in two ways. That as a church, we must live united together, and that we must be a church of people fearless for the gospel. And I want to close with a quote. It's kind of an old quote that no one really knows where it came from. But it says this, I expect to die in bed. I expect my successor to die in prison. I expect his successor to be a martyr in the public square. Then I expect his successor will pick up the pieces of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the Christian church has done so often in human history. How true that is. And the only question is where we are in that pattern. I'm not sure, and I, I don't think it really matters. Because whether we're in the first or the last of that pattern that this author says, or whether we're shifting, as Sam says, to a new cultural space or, or with greater opposition or not, the reality is the gospel will prevail. Just as the gospel has always prevailed in times far worse than ours and will continue to prevail in the days ahead. And yet, I want to close with this, that church, this does not mean that as the people of God, we sit on the sidelines, passively cheering on the work of God. Not at all. Because Paul concludes uh, this, this paragraph by calling to arms this church, fully expecting them to do what? To engage. He says, I want to expect, I want to hear from you that you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul expects the church to be engaged in the gospel. In a sense, if we go back to that bobsled, right, right, it's already left the mountain. It's already going down the track. It's already reached the speed of 90 miles an hour. It's coming along to that curve where you know is dangerous, and you're in this bobsled. My favorite verse, or my life verse, it might be a little strange, but it's 1 Peter 2.11, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, citizens of heaven, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Friends, for far too long, I've sat on the sidelines. I've wasted enough of my life sitting on the bench. Too often I fail to remember that I'm in a battle, that I need to engage. It's time again to be awoken, to be all in for the sake of the gospel, to show to our onlooking world the beauty and worthiness of the good news of Jesus. What's holding you back? The only life living The only life living 
is a life lived worthy of the gospel. Father God, we thank you for this gospel, this good news of your life, death, and resurrection. And Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people that lives in consistency with that good news. Lord, we need your help. We thank you, Lord, where there is failure on our part, that there is much grace. We thank you that you're a God of love who's with us and for us, never to leave us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful vessels to speak and declare and demonstrate your good news everywhere we go in our lives. Lord, we pray to that end. Amen.